You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's exciting new role as the world's least convincing advocate of the welfare of journalists. My guests Linda Yu and Matthew Green will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the opening of China's immense new bridge to Hong Kong and Macau and the attendant debate over whether it is a great white hope or a big white elephant, how China is absorbing the news of America's intention to break a missile treaty with Russia, and will there be any demand for terrible art created by people? if computers can paint things just as bad. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, a broadcaster and author of The Great Economists, How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today, and Matthew Green, journalist and author of Aftershock, The Untold Story of Surviving Peace. Welcome both. It's three weeks exactly since the Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi walked into his country's consulate in Istanbul. Every day that has passed since has seen the saga of his disappearance grow more grotesque and absurd, and today has been no exception. In Ankara, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, not usually noted for his concern for the safety of reporters, has accused Saudi Arabia of the premeditated murder of Khashoggi and demanded that the suspects be tried in Turkey. In Riyadh, members of Khashoggi's family, including his brother, have been received by King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, whose flunkies continued to, de- to deny, rather, that the royal family know anything about Khashoggi's death. Um, Matthew, I don't know where to start with this even after three weeks. Is any of this at all making any sense whatsoever to you? (laughs) That's a very good question. (laughs) I was pleased with it. Uh, I mean, the Turks are clearly making their absolute most out of this, aren't they? Obviously, long-term rivals with the Saudis, but they're just not going to let this one go, are they? I mean, Erdogan's been on the floor of Parliament basically saying that the perpetrators from the from those who ordered it to the those who carried it out need to be tried. In fairness uh, to Erdogan, which is not a phrase I enjoy uttering, I would prefer to think that there is not a country on earth that would be willing to let this go. No, no absolutely. There's no... I mean, in a way, you can't let it go, can you? Um, but... The question is, what's the, what is the, um, where does it all end? At, w- at what point does this resolve itself, one way or the other? I mean, the Saudis obviously not going to hand over anybody to the Turks to interrogate and to put on trial. I, I mean, th- this could just rumble on almost indefinitely, right? Uh, well, it, it, it's, it's so far it shows no sign of running out of steam. Um, Linda, one way the Saudis have tried to resolve this was by staging this inexplicable photo opportunity uh, today in Riyadh in which uh, King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman received the members of Khashoggi's family and there seems no reason not to believe that Khashoggi's family assume like everybody else does that Khashoggi's death was ordered by the Saudi royal family. Um, You start to... I I genuinely cannot understand at this point whether this macabre theatre is part of the process and part of the the plot as far as the Saudis concerned or whether they genuinely just have no idea at all what they're doing. 
Oh, those are those are hard choices. I think <laughs> it kind um, of looks like one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be quite a lot of political theater around this because clearly there's a lot of um, MBS. The Crown Prince has been ordered to review the intelligence services, so essentially, implicitly absolving him of any responsibility is in terms of how the Saudis are um, managing the next step here. But of course, I think the escalation by the Turkish president, Erdogan, means that we are going to see more more posture on both sides. And I think a strong sense that they want to get to the bottom of it. I think the problem is going to be, unless other countries step in more forcefully, I'm not sure we will get to the bottom of it. So today we've also had a letter from the G7 foreign ministers, and they have now thrown significantly, I think, um, you know, their support behind uh, getting to the bottom of what exactly happened so that the perpetrators can uh, be brought um, to justice. And if that is the Saudi royal family, then I think you really do need external powers um, to have a say in something which is so grotesque. Um, I think they absolutely should have, uh, should have a say. I mean, this should not stand... Um, at all. And I think that's hopefully what we're going to get from the international um, arena. Uh, Matthew, to return to your earlier point that President Erdogan clearly seems intent on making the most of this, um, do you get any sense yet of what Turkey hopes to leverage from this? Because clearly they hope to leverage something. From, I mean, I, I cannot personally understand myself why Turkey has not as yet just told every Saudi diplomatic mission in the country to pack up and leave. In fact, I can't understand why more other countries uh, haven't said much the same to the Saudis. But what can Turkey hope to gain from this? Well, presumably Erdogan's positioning himself with a long game in view. Turkey, obviously a Muslim country, long-term rival for influence with Saudi Arabia with a very different type of um, governing setup, a very different culture, different, very different relationship between religion and state. It's, it's a gift, isn't it? I mean, it's an absolute gift. Uh, why not absolutely make the most of it, play it out for as long as you can? And some people have been saying that the, 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 the sort of way they've been dripping this out, the messaging from the Turkish officials in terms of how they've planted this story in the media, how it's been run, has been incredibly sophisticated, actually. I mean, it's, it's been... I mean... It, in some respects, it couldn't be easier. I mean, the, the, the evidence doesn't need to be um, cooked or to be exaggerated. But nonetheless, it's still been very careful and deliberate. In, or the, the, the Turkish side has been very careful and deliberate in how well, they've they've worked. I mean, we, we don't know, though, that a lot of that evidence hasn't been cooked or fabricated. Most of the more lurid details and speculation about Khashoggi's death That's have true. come from very pro-government Turkish newspapers, yeah. which are clearly being spoon-fed by Turkish officials, neither of whom the Western media would be in that much of a hurry to trust under normal circumstances. Do you think they've taken to that? I mean, I, I think we're long past the point at which there's any hope that something dreadful has not happened to Jamal Khashoggi, but has been has everybody, especially the Western media, do you think, been a little bit too quick to pick up on the more gruesome details uh, propagated yeah, well, by and Turkish And there's been papers. some criticism, hasn't there, in terms of some of the coverage, um, when we think about how hostage crises involving Western journalists have been handled in the past, there's often been kind of tacit agreements to avoid reporting certain details or to hold back on the rush to judgment. Or indeed um, reporting them at all in yeah, some Yeah, exactly, instances. or simply not to reveal that they've happened. Um, obviously that never happened in this case. Um, I mean, you could argue that there's differences 
uh, between the sorts of stories, uh, uh, between different individual stories. But yeah, there's certainly questions about how this has been reported. But I, I mean, I think the interesting point Linda makes about how, how's this going to be resolved. I mean, has anyone been talking about imposing sanctions on the Saudi royal family? I mean, that would be the obvious international instrument to use. Well, but... the, the closest we have come to that so far, Linda, and this is one of the other curious subplots of this this whole thing, um, is the so-called Davos in the Desert, the investment conference, which in over the last few weeks, quite a lot of high-profile companies, uh, politicians, diplomats and so forth, have made a show of announcing that they are no longer going to attend or would no longer attend. Uh, the conference has now taken place or is underway. Some people did go anyway. Uh, does that suggest a belief among, certainly among corporations and entities with a slightly less high public profile, that this is probably going to blow over? I think it's going to uh, be interesting to see how long it actually takes to be resolved. I think for the companies that haven't pulled out, a lot of them have, I think, pretty deep links, including in the oil industry. So, for instance, um, SoftBank, um, which has very close links to the Saudis, um, the uh, you know the the top guy there turned up at Davos in the desert but refused to speak. Um, so I think they're all doing sort of iterations of that. And in fact, the Saudi energy minister said um, it's a real crisis for them. So um, any companies, including Total, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, which are still, which are there, I think they're going to hope this blows over quickly. Um, But I think there's going to be, as we've been saying, quite a bit still uh, to play with it. And I think it's also worth pointing out that Steve Nugent, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, pulled out of Davos in the desert, the actual forum, but he actually went to Saudi in order to speak uh, to the royal family. And we have to remember the Saudis are allied to the United States um, with sanctions, the second round of sanctions on Iran, which involve um, prohibiting companies that do business with Iran from uh, using the U.S. banking system, that round of sanctions probably has bite. And Saudi is one of the few countries in the region that can ramp up its oil production in order to control oil prices. So there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think, there's a lot of parts uh, to this, which we have yet to see fully play out. Okay, well, let's move on now uh, to another part of the world entirely. It has taken nine years, cost at least $20 billion and the lives of at least 18 construction workers, but it is now officially open, the Hong kong macau Zhuhai Bridge, the world's longest sea-crossing bridge at 55 kilometres and an astonishing feat of engineering linking both Macau and Hong Kong to the Chinese mainland. President Xi Jinping of China has attended the official opening in Zhuhai. Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece The Global Times has predictably praised the project as a chance for the Greater Bay Area to cooperate and participate in a new round of global competition, and that it shows China's determination to deepen its reforms, whatever any of that even means. Um, Linda, is this bridge, it seems a slightly redundant question to ask about something so monumental now, but is it actually necessary? It's not going to pay for itself, but whether it's necessary or not is probably a slightly different 
geopolitical question rather than an economic one. So I think all the estimates are somehow this massive bridge is going to pay for itself in terms of tolls. I think that's very unlikely. However... They would need to be very high tolls. They would need to be very high tolls. <laughs> but if you look at how um, how closely it links Zhuhai with Hong Kong, so it took four hours before to go... So Zhuhai is on the Chinese mainland, and it's viewed as the place where Chinese financial experimentation happens because Hong Kong, of course, is under a different system for 50 years, 30 years more to go. Mm-hmm. So Zhuhai is actually where the Chinese authorities have focused on building a financial opening, a base on the mainland for developing a very important sector. So it used to take four hours to go from Zhuhai to Hong Kong International Airport. It's now cut down to 45 minutes. So that alone uh, for uh, the Chinese may warrant building this link. It's also part of their greater plan. It's called the Greater uh, Bay, which links essentially, um, they're trying to build more infrastructure to link Hong Kong, Macau, Zhuhai, but also parts of southern China. So they view this as an important strategic development in order for them to have more uh, ability to sustain production in the south. So the very expensive coastal regions can get cheaper labor from the interior and all of that. So there's actually there's other reasons, um, political reasons, um, for them to want to build this bridge. But I think quite unusually um, for a Chinese project, um, it's actually taken a long time. And I think very, very sadly, as you've pointed out, lives have been lost, which really in the 21st century to construct a bridge at that cost is really, I think, very surprising. Uh, Matthew, is there an element of this, do you think, that China sees uh, an, an enterprise of this scale as a prestige project? Is China still at the point of its development at which it feels it necessary to demonstrate that it can do something like this, whether or not doing that is, is strictly necessary? Maybe. And they've built enormous bridges all over Africa as well. I mean, there's some incredible projects that are not quite as big as that, but not far off. But I still think, Andrew, we might be missing the bigger story, which was broken last week by the People's Daily, which was the plan to put a fake moon in space. (laughs) Remember that one? Isn't there a Chinese aerospace company that wants to build a a literal fake moon to orbit the Earth and to provide illumination at night? I mean, that, that is a story... That I would pay more, pay money to hear more about. I, I, I did read of that. I, I, I suspect that may be a, a longer-term uh, <laughs> well, I mean, a- ambition. The Chinese are famous for building things quickly. I mean, knocking up a second moon to orbit the Earth presumably would take you know five, ten years. I think it's going to be stationary initially over Sichuan province to reduce cost at night of lighting the streets. It's, it's, because it's, that it's, would make perfect sense. <laughs> Street lights versus building another moon. Yeah, I, I you can you can only imagine that that somebody arrived at the meeting after a particularly satisfactory lunch yeah, uh, well, with, well, with that idea. Yeah, but we joke about this, doesn't China has a Mars program, right? I mean, a serious mm. Mars program. Yeah, Could they have easily, very serious aerospace programs. Easily have yeah. a chi- Chinese astronauts on Mars before anyone else. That Wasn't Matt a... Damon already there? No. <laughs> <laughs> He's still there. Uh, just just re- returning us to Earth uh, briefly, <laughs> Linda. Uh, as far as it's possible to tell, has this thing actually been popular locally? Because there has mm. been a lot of complaint about the pollution, certainly, to uh, the mm. surrounding waters, the, the disruption, the expense, and so forth. 
I think the uh, the reports from the Hong Kong side is that it hasn't, it's not viewed terribly favorably because of the depths of workers that we've already mentioned, um, but also because apparently, even though it's taken a very long time to build, and it is the world's longest sea highway, I don't know how much competition there is for that, um, but in terms of um, how well it's linked up to local transport, not very well, There's apparently. There's no, no public transport on no, the bridge. No, but to get to the port, to even get onto the highway, um, it hasn't really been linked up. And remember, Hong Kong is a separate system, so you need a visa to enter China. So there's also going to be passport checks if you're going to go this Hong kong Zhuhai route, which is not terribly convenient, actually, for a lot of people. You and I talked about this earlier. If you wanted to go to Macau, you could just go to Hong Kong, get on the ferry and get to Macau and avoid uh, passport checks and what have you. There's also an issue, is there not, with people driving on different sides of the road? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the real difficulty here. So, <laughs> in Hong Kong, Macau, they drive the British way, and in China, they drive the other way, and so they have to have some complicated mergers. There's like a fancy figure eight configuration on this bridge, and I think it's helped is to help merge traffic so that cars don't collide headlong into each other. That sounds like a whole world of what could possibly go wrong, doesn't it? And, and what are the Hong Kong? people feel about this but i mean there's obviously a long history with china a lot of tensions all kinds of issues is this bridge seen as another almost like a kind of embrace that is a little bit sinister in a way that we're now kind of (laughs) anchored in even more tightly Mm. to china i don't know whether that's part of it as well it's very visible concrete kind of gesture of right you know we we plugged you in fully Mm. i don't know I think some do view it that way because obviously there have been a lot of protests in Hong Kong around the um, the, the growing role of China in their um, one country, two systems. And I yeah. think this bridge is a manifestation of it. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Linda Yu and Matthew Green. Coming up next, how the breaking of a US-Russia missile treaty might be seen from China. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Linda Yu and Matthew Green. And let's stay in China, the rulers of which, in between opening long bridges, are among those attempting to fathom the consequences of America's threatened withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which limits American and Russian short- and medium-range missiles. One possible reason for America's desire to ditch the treaty, signed by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987, is that it does not cover China, which has been free to 
to keep developing missile forces, which the US is not technically at liberty to counter. Um, Linda, does that strike you as the likely reason that America actually wants out of this, that they're not so much worried about Russia anymore as they are about China? I think they're probably increasingly worried about China, as well as the fact that the uh, the Trump administration have issued a few statements where they don't think the Russians are necessarily abiding by the treaty. But certainly vis-a-vis China, the new superpower, the fact that this treaty doesn't include China means that um, China developing missiles, especially land-based missiles, is something that the Americans um, can't do technically, but the Chinese can. And so I think that is one of the motivations um, why the president has threatened to pull out of um, this treaty. But there's also, I think, a practical consideration about uh, the U.S. developing these missiles, especially intermediate-range missiles, which are land-based. Um, where they can put them in the Asian region is another big topic. In other words, there are countries which may not feel comfortable with China, but may not be willing to land, lend their land to the Americans either. Um, if there was an escalation of missile building, they're going to have to put these missiles somewhere um, in that region. And I think that's going to be something else that we may well be talking about in a few months' time. Indeed. Matthew, does this raise the fun prospect of a America versus China short and intermediate missile <laughs> arms race? Well, it so- sounds like it has all the hallmarks of doing so. But I-, I think it's interesting, isn't it, to see even some of the reaction in Washington with some Republicans not happy about this. I mean, this was one of Reagan's greatest legacies, this arms reduction treaty. And I'm just watching on the TV last night that footage from 1983 Reagan and Gorbachev sitting there. Nancy Reagan, I forget Gorbachev's wife's name. You'll Rice know this. And yes, there you. I knew you. I knew. I knew you'd know that. Sitting there, you think sort that's of. Ever come up in a pub quiz? <laughs> no, it never has. Why do I know that? What's the point? <laughs> and they're sitting, chatting, and there's. It's an incredible sequence. This footage, incredible sequence, and the idea that that's kind of been again, just another thing that Donald Trump's kind of unpicked with a comment. But just just on that point, is this one of those things in which it's just probably the kind of thing that any Republican president would have done, but everyone's going, ah, about it because it's Donald Trump? Well, maybe. And and this is the interesting, goes back to the bigger question that we've talked about before. Who's actually, who is running America these days anyway? I mean, I, I, I can imagine someone put a folder in front of him at some point, tried to get him to focus on it for more than five seconds and said... We need to do something about this. I, I can't imagine Donald Trump woke up one morning and suddenly decided it would be a good idea to pull out of this street. I mean, he probably didn't even know it existed until last week. Uh, very probably not. Um, Linda, if, we, if we're trying to be optimistic about this, would be there, there be any prospect of China being interested uh, in reaching some sort of agreement as even the Soviet Union was willing to do in 1987 with the United States about missiles? No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, give us something. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, um, the, the reason I know, I say no, is because I think um, really quite sadly, um, the two countries are, are rivals. They view themselves as rivals. I think we've seen it economically. I think economically, it was always the case that there was greater partnership potential between America and China, because that is actually how trade and investment works. But I think on the military side, they were always positioned as rivals. And one of the most worrying things is as China's economic and political influence grows, um, I think 
there are going to be more and more uh, pressures around who's the top country, who's the superpower, who's the most influential, who has the most hard power, who's the most soft power. I think that, unfortunately, is inevitable. But I think there's another side to this as well, is that whenever you have arms buildup, it tends to be because the you don't know what the other side has. So you know the movie with Ben Affleck playing Jack Ryan, the um, Sum of All Fears? I'm, I, I think I may have seen it on a plane okay. when I'd watched so, literally all the other movies. Okay. <laughs> so Ben Affleck saved the day by intervening between the Russians and the Americans to say, don't just launch a nuclear missile because you think the other side is going to. Why don't you talk? I think that's actually really insightful. And I think if we <laughs> took that principle and put it to work between China and the U.S., I think that's a much better alternative than what can sometimes be viewed as an arms buildup. I don't think it should be exaggerated. I think there is communication between the two sides, but I think there's also an element of deterrence in terms of building up capabilities. Can I just put a note out to anyone from the West Wing of the White House who is listening to this to please insert a copy of the Sum of All Fears DVD into Donald Trump's viewing schedule for this evening you, and potentially you, save the world as a do, result. Do you, do you think he'd be able to follow it? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Let's quit while we're ahead because somebody <laughs> might just be acting on that because there doesn't seem to be anyone else in charge there, right? Well, we will move along finally uh, tonight to uh, an auction because among the items going under the hammer at Christie's Prince and Multiple Sale this week is a painting entitled Portrait of Edmund Bellamy, an olden times-looking gentleman in a black frock coat and plain white collar. The painting is, in the estimation of this admittedly inexpert observer, bloody awful, but this is scarcely the point. The painting is a landmark, potentially, in the history of art. It is the first piece created by artificial intelligence ever put on the block by a major auction house. It is the work of Paris-based collective Obvious, who wrote the algorithm which created the painting. Matthew, is this art? No. A, 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 a painting produced by an algorithm? Yes. Yeah. No. It can't be art. Art is a reflection of the luminous human spirit. Where is there luminous human spirit in a computer program? Well, where I, you... I've given you my answer, Adam. What, what, what more do you want? <laughs> I'm asking you where, to use an appropriate phrase, you are drawing the line. Because there, there is a great deal of art in which there is a uh, there is technology you know, is, mediates between the luminous that, human that, soul and the consumer. That's true, because I'm a big fan of electronic music. There you are, then. So I've, I'm hoist by my own baton. You are. But I, but I can't be alone in thinking that this pa- there's a problem with this painting. Well, well, there's well. A, a problem with, the problem with the painting is that it's terrible. But, Linda, the, <laughs> doubtless algorithms will get better at painting paintings. And when they do get better at painting paintings, will those, still, will those then be art? Yes, I think art is expression. This I is think, controversial. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, there, are, there are pieces of art which are, some are better than others, and sometimes, you know, opinions get revised later on. Um, from, my, from uh, what was it, Shark in Formaldehyde, the Brit Pack of the 1990s. By Damien Hurst. It wasn't yeah. called that, though. It was called, uh, the, the title went on for several days. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I think... I'm going to say it was called Riza Gorbachev. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> well, as I understood it, when they showed their art, they refused to have any labels. No art had to be titled. So one day when AI gets to the point where they dictate how the art is shown, I think that's the day when artificial intelligence will have fully arrived, when they pick up the characteristics of artists. I don't rule it out. 
You mean I AI is the curator as well as the uh, as well as the well, artist? Well, it's like these artists; happen. they dictate how their art is shown. So, if you can imagine one day AI, some algorithm, some algebraic formulation <laughs> causes them to pick up traits of their programmers, which often happens with AI, then you may well find that they become like um, other artists, except they're they're virtual. Um, but let's I think let's 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 bring this back a little bit to reality. What, Christie's hopes to sell this for $10,000? In the art world, isn't that sort of the equivalent of a a garage sale? Yeah, exactly. I I, I don't think you'd even usually get the frame uh, for for, for $10,000. I'm worried that we'll come back to this studio in a few weeks and Andrew would have been replaced by an artificially intelligent presenter. Well, 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 you know, (laughs) way, Matthew, to to blow the punchline of this item uh, and and therefore this entire episode. Well, that's that's why you can't have artificial intelligence, that's, that's can what, you? That's what I was going to go out on. <laughs> well, <laughs> there must be a way... There must the, be a way. Your algorithm obviously needs reprogramming if it's that predictable. There, there must be a way to replace the guests with artificial intelligence. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's the first thing we're going to look into. Um, Linda, this does raise profound questions, much more profound than you're going to have time to get into properly in 23 <laughs> seconds, about the relationship between um, art and the creator of it. Do we need to know things that we like about the creator of it to actually appreciate the art? Is it still a great painting if it was run up on a machine by some French people with an algorithm? Yes, because you want to know about the obvious collective. All algorithms reflect the prejudices and the context of the programmers. And so art, in this case, is no different than any other line of computer code. Oh, that's you told, Matthew. I, I think we should we should end it there, and I cannot <laughs> cap that. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Linda Yu and Matthew Green, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Maimone. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily with Paul Osborne at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you for listening. <laughs>